0: This is Chattanooga Civics. I'm Nathan Bird. The Chattanooga Neighborhood Enterprise is a nonprofit founded to help families navigate the home buying process and become successful lifelong homeowners. CNE is involved in many different aspects of the Chattanooga housing market, including education, lending, and development. I sat down with Martina Guilfoyle, the president of CNE, to discuss their work, especially as it pertains to housing affordability. Before we get to the interview, I want to thank everyone supporting the show on Patreon. A special thanks goes out to the Marks family for supporting me at the highest level. Patreon supporters are the first to find out about upcoming guests and have the opportunity to have their questions asked on air. Please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash chat
1: Martina Guilfoyle. I'm the president and CEO of Chattanooga Neighborhood Enterprise.
0: So give us a broad overview of what Chattanooga Neighborhood Enterprise is and what y'all do, the programs y'all have. There's a lot just looking at your website, so just kind of list out the, the highlights.
1: Okay. Uh, so CNE, we believe that the future of Chattanooga is rooted in the vibrancy of our neighborhoods and the prosperity of all of our people. And the way that we manifest this belief is through providing investments in, in neighborhoods. And then on the prosperity piece is providing and offering uh, programs that help people buy a home, which is the primary way most, most people accumulate wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do budget counseling um, to help people if to reach their goal, whether it's reducing debt or... Uh, savings or um, improving their credit score and then we also have a um, uh, with our affordable rental products Our affordable rentals really help people live in a stable home, but also save money that way because they're paying less money in rent than they would out out on the open market. And then our other piece of our work is is our community engagement, which is bringing residents together to really develop their leadership skills so that they can identify what they want for their community. Mm -hmm. And that really ties in closely then with our neighborhood work again. um, Not only are we investing in neighborhoods, but then helping residents to identify, uh, ongoing problems or or um, um, uh, their aspirations for their neighborhood and help them achieve those.
0: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it kind of breaks down into education, financial assistance, community engagement. Is that kind of a rough? Yeah, and I would community. say neighborhood investment. Neighborhood investment. Mm-hmm, yes. um, so, so where does CNE's funding come from for all of these projects? I'm sure there's probably different silos, maybe for for different types of projects. So, if, could you get into that a little bit?
1: Oh yeah, you have to cobble it all together. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, so we've been fortunate that. Be, uh, we've been closely aligned with the city for 35 years, so we mm. get a, a large portion of our budget from the city. Okay, uh, is it through their now? It's called the budgeting for priority-based budgeting. Um, so we we get funding from them, although the goal of the board of directors is to increase our our earned revenues mm-hmm. year over year so that we become, we're not as reliant on government funding and we can actually, we could use that money for projects in the future. We're not there yet, although we are year over year generating more income. And the way we generate income is through our uh, rental fees, and then our uh, we we service loans. Uh, we make loans and then we service them, and there's the interest off the loans that we generate. Um, and then our loan origination for our first mortgage lending that we do. Um, and then, of course, there's other grants. Lyndhurst and Benwood Foundation have been strong supporters of C and e for I think thirty five years, and they continue to support us, although more in the uh, project realm in terms of our our project work than than operating, though we have gotten from time to time big operating support from them for special projects, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, NeighborWorks America, we're one of 250 NeighborWorks organizations across the country. NeighborWorks gets a direct appropriation from Congress, and we get funding from them on an annual basis. Um, So that's – those are kind of the the big buckets right now.
0: That's a lot of buckets. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, So going back to kind of the programs that this money is is used to fund, you've talked about um, different education programs. You've talked about down payment assistance. You've talked about rentals. How do citizens qualify for these various programs? I know there's different levels. I'm sure education, it's probably all open – Um, but for things like down payment assistance and rental assistance and all that, how how do you qualify for that?
1: Yeah. I mean, generally you're right. Depending upon the the program that you're looking for, education is free to everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, buying a home, you're not born knowing how to buy a home and there's, there's a lot of components to it. And so I wish everybody would do home buyer education. Um, some lenders require it, uh, before you get a mortgage, so that's open to everybody, as is our financial counseling. Somebody wants to come in and, and get some help. We'll, and trust me, you may have a lot of money and you don't know how to manage your money. So I mean, that is available to everybody. Um, the the income qualified programs really are the our affordable rentals and mm-hmm. our down payment assistance. Uh, again, anybody can come in and get a first mortgage from us. We're pretty competitive and that um the income that we generate off our first mortgage lending goes to pay for our mission work. And so we wish more people would come to us. If, if it, you could go to us or Rocket Mortgage or any private uh, mortgage company in Chattanooga, it's like, well, your money is being reinvested back in the community if you right. come here.
0: I- I had no idea that that was just open yeah, to we, anyone. We,
1: yeah, we keep we, you know we try to promote it, and right. obviously we don't have a huge marketing budget, but um, it is something that um, we do, and we encourage people to come to us. Um, so the the down payment assistance program is uh, income qualified I mean the best thing to do is go on our website because it's based on family size and and um, your income mm-hmm. so uh, and then but that's when then we have several different programs because one program that's funded directly from the city of Chattanooga is a lower income and then we have our own uh, capital that we use here that we go higher mm-hmm. Um and so then on the, um, and then affordable rentals is <clears throat> similar. It's really based on your income and your family size. Uh, we do cap right now. We're capping our rentals at, for a family of one, it's about 30, 39, well, it's almost $40,000, mm-hmm. a little less than 40,000. Um, and then it goes down from there.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so how many of those rentals do you all have and, and manage? Is that something you can share?
1: Yeah, we have. Right now, we have 164 units. Okay. Um, we've got 47 under construction. We're getting ready to break ground on another 29 units uh, within the next month or two, um, and then we have another 82 in in pre-development, meaning okay. we've got engineers and architects working on plans. Mm-hmm. Um, And we're working on funding. Um, And then uh, we've got possibility of working on another 60 uh, that we still have to work out those details. And then looking at, um, we still have land for a few more projects after that.
0: Okay. Uh, So it sounds like affordable housing in general is is pretty core to CNE's mission. Uh, And I just want to talk about that phrase for a little bit. Affordable housing is Talked about a lot, especially Chattanooga. Rental rates are rising, home values are rising very quickly compared to the national average. Uh, what is the metric that CNE uses to, to quantify affordable housing specifically, instead of just kind of throwing it out there as a feel good phrase?
1: Yes, that's um, that's a really great question, and uh, you're right. I hate the word affordable because nobody knows what that means, and so from a government perspective. You can quantify it as, just as I did, a, f- a family of one that earns $39,950 uh, is considered affordable. Um, and then it goes down based on your income. So 60, that's 80% AMI. The, the, you get into these AMIs is what the the um, government uses. Yeah, what is, what is that term? Area AMI? median income, okay. which means that... Your area, your median income is half make more, half make less. Mm -hmm. So 80% would be 80% of the median. Um, So, and then the 60%, which is where we try to target most of our product, is at $30,000 for a family of one. Um, And then uh, I think 50% AMI is $25,000. So, when I do community uh, events, I like to just talk about the household income, because Mm -hmm. the other misnomer, unfortunately, is when you say affordable housing, everybody conjures up some bad image of what that family or person looks like. And actually, it's somebody that makes about 12 or $13 an hour, which means these are working people in our community that serve you Everywhere you go during your day that you don't even think about, Mm -hmm. where are they going to be able to live in the future as our housing prices increase? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's kind of where we measure affordability in um, using the government terms.
0: Uh, This might not be something that Sandy gets directly involved in, but I'm curious, what are what are the areas around which those amis are measured you said you know median income so half make more half make less depending on how big that area is that can really change a median if you just take kind of the downtown core it'll look different from if you take you know an area that includes lookout mountain and east lake you know i mean it's that half make more half make less number is going to change wildly depending on where you draw the line yes
1: yeah, so this is comes out of hud the oh. um housing and urban development um mm. which is a government entity and so they use uh the um area of hamilton county and parts of georgia Oh wow! and so it's a pretty big that's a pretty large area yeah area that's how they determine the the um median income that we use for government programs interesting yeah um i will say that when so when we look at median income and and this is one of my concerns in terms of of escalating prices as you see, there was you know, recently a report that 50% of the people that moved into Chattanooga last year made over $100,000. Mm-hmm. So you see now these higher income families or households moving in. And what impact is that having in terms of skewing the median higher right. where we're not seeing... Now, maybe the pandemic will change some of this as staffing shortages have happened, which will actually be probably a good thing for for wages. Well, depending on where you fall on the spectrum, I think it's a good thing for wages. Um, We might see higher wages. But, I mean, we have not seen a lot of movement in terms of people's wages at the lower end. Mm -hmm. And so as we start pushing towards, uh, well, $40,000 is affordable, what does that mean to people that really need... um, uh, that are earning $25,000, <coughs> excuse me, $25,000 that need a place to live that's affordable.
0: Right. So I want to talk about uh, your, your actual on-the-ground projects that you all do, building housing and, and rental housing, um, and and just talk about how these projects work, maybe get into how they're funded, how they're selected, the areas that they're in, and maybe get into some of the challenges that you face, building these projects, and, and how many of them end up meeting that affordable metric, and how many of them end up kind of maybe subsidizing that affordable metric? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, that's a good question. Um, well, we were really fortunate back in 2013, which is right before I came to see um, the staff had been working with Tennessee Temple University. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were getting ready to... Um, Um, leave the area, closed down. They'd already closed down. They were leaving the area and they were uh, disposing of all of their assets, selling them off. So they had uh, over time acquired all of these empty lots, what I call outside the gates for anybody who's driven through Highland Parks will see the fence that used to be up around the university. Um, And so we were able to negotiate with them to buy 32 parcels that were outside the gates that basically were vacant land that I think their, their big vision at one point was to create parking, um, on those lots. So we were able to buy them. I, they, it, the whole package turned out to be about $10,000 per lot. Um, the, um, um, and our, our goal was to kind of rebuild that fabric of Highland Park and Ridgedale because there were so many vacant lots. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, believe it or not, back in 2014, 2015, I mean, Highland Park had always been on the edge, the tipping point for so many years. It, was, it would have fits and starts of looking like it was going to be a desirable neighborhood, and then it would kind of go through another trend downward. Um, so it was a risk whether or not building for-sale housing was going to be uh, a good investment there. Um, but so our, we met with the community and we said, okay, we've got these 32 parcels. And there was kind of a contingent that said, yes, we want density because we know that in order to have neighborhood serving uses, you have to have more dense housing and more people. And then a contingent that said, no, we, we want single family um, character. So we kind of split it in the middle and did both. Hmm um so that's that answers your question where that for the last so the last five years that's where we've really focused because that's where we had all this land that we were able to buy um we it took us a few years to really develop it out we we our first project was a small format apartment building 51 units called the Maybell, and um um I guess we just, we just, well, let me backtrack before I get into that project. The challenge with that land was that the university had two dorms that they had gone through, and to tell you how much they, how broke they were, they took all of the, metal out of the buildings to get to scrap it for money. But in the process, they spewed asbestos everywhere. So the buildings were filled with environmental problems. Right. Um, And so, and the soils, because back I don't know. I mean, there used to be foundries here in in Alton Park, and they people needed fill, and they just yeah. put foundry sand everywhere. So you yeah. can't build in Chattanooga without finding foundry Pre- sand. Which pretty much now, everything yes. from the
0: river to the ridge is is contaminated and so, in some way. Yes, yeah.
1: and so we were able to uh, remediate those problems with grants from Benwood in Lin- Inlandhurst. Um, and then we got a loan through the city for some of it. So it was very expensive. So there was no way that a private developer at that time would ever have gone into the neighborhood because we had probably $500,000 in sunk costs wow. just in cleanup just and to taking the cleaned. dorms down and, and that sort of thing. So that kind of sets the stage for, then we were able to start building. We did the Maybell small format apartment building, um, uh, uh, and then from there, we got really interested in this format of housing called missing middle, mm-hmm. which is it's interesting because you can drive through older parts of Chattanooga and see it, um, and there are cities that are made up of missing middle across the country, which basically are small apartment buildings, duplexes up to maybe a twelve a twelve plex, for example, that look very much like a house. Um, But it creates density in neighborhoods. And so we thought, this is interesting. How do we really, again, thinking about the neighborhood context and affordability, how do we surgically kind of go in and create density and affordability and more housing? And these housing types just seemed to fit the bill. I mean, it was perfect. So. Our first prototype was a sixplex on Union Avenue. Subsequently, we've built I think six six of those, maybe seven, Um, and they're four one bedrooms and two two bedrooms. And then from there we uh, moved across the street and we did a a sixplex court, which is 30 units composed of five different buildings. And then we moved to Bailey Avenue. We put four sixplexes there. Uh, Now we're under construction for for four quadplexes behind the Maybell. We're doing a new development, a small standalone 18-unit walk-up with four quads mirroring the houses across the street, kind of in scale. There's a huge house on the corner, so I think it fits into the neighborhood um, and then we're under construction for some duplexes, okay. uh, and then um, yeah, those are the prototypes we have under under construction. So that's kind of so the challenges. The I guess I spent time talking about our lots that we bought because for for the longest time, for the, about three years, we were able to really get by with we bought the lots at ten thousand. We bought we built single family houses, and we started building. Um, the, we, we worked with a private developer and he built bigger houses mm-hmm. and then we said no we want you to we want you to make them smaller so then he built some smaller 1200 square foot houses and then we built some 900 800 square foot houses and then we did some 900 square foot houses with the thought being that those small houses would always be an affordable entry point into the neighborhood um, and those were built on the same block as our uh, some of the the uh, Um, six plexes in the the five pack I call it the five pack um, (laughs) that we built Um, but as so as the as a couple of years went on the ten thousand dollars we had in land then became forty thousand dollars and I forgot the last appraisal we got I don't know if it was 60 or not but we were able to leverage that as equity into the project And so that really helps because the biggest challenge with building is you have to bring your own money to the table because the bank right. will only lend, I don't want to get technical, but it'll only lend on a, a percentage of your debt. And they want, they want more money than, uh, than what your uh, debt will coverage, your debt coverage. So um, <clears throat> we were able to use that. And then we got grants again from Benwood Lyndhurst. We got funding from the city. Uh, to to really reduce the the um, rent the rental rate on eleven of the units of the Maybell and um, every project we kind of go in for twenty percent of, of okay. using cities it's called home funds, um, so that worked until we got to a project um, well the May, the May, we're calling it the Maybell 2 the project i just described with the quads in the small 18 unit apartment building came in about a million over over what we thought um, and so then we have to start reverse engineering and figuring out okay how do you how do you or is there something we missed is there something in construction um, uh, covid hit uh, lumber prices jumped yes um, uh, Lyndhurst came forward with a grant to help cover the gap so and then we also went in for the first time for a pilot which is payment in lieu of taxes CNE pays taxes right now on every one of its projects which is I guess we're going to talk about policy but it's a huge impact on affordability mm-hmm. or leveraging the amount of debt that you can take on. Um, so we have a pilot. Uh, so we were able to make that project work, and then we, uh, we have 24 units we're getting ready to break ground on in, um, on MLK, which is I'm really excited about that project because it's right in the middle of downtown, um, and that one, again, came in about a million over what we had anticipated because of increased labor and construction costs. So mm-hmm. working with going to kind of our go-to contractor Who's who's been able to figure out how to shave costs, um, and a lot of it is because he self performs. Um, so working with him, we were able to reduce, I would say, um, four or five hundred thousand, and then still had a gap. So mm-hmm. again, Lynn Hurst came to the table and uh, helped us out on on that project. And that we're going to the. Um, I just submitted an application to the city to fund affordability lower the rents in that project so we'll see how that turns out but that's kind of the what the the error that we're in right now is construction costs um, are such that in order to really bring affordability we're going to have to leverage a lot of different tools that we haven't layered before we were able to do it with you know some foundation funding um, and, and honestly, I mean, and I give kudos to Ben Wood and Lyndhurst because they're just incredible partners, but I mean, they're, they have limits on what they can support. And I think mm-hmm. we're at the point now where construction costs for a unit has gotten so high. They're saying we can't be the only funder in a project we right. need, we have to start really figuring this out. Um, how do you layer? Um,
0: so I've got, Several follow up questions. That was all very informative. Um, I guess I want to start with kind of your land selection strategies. Uh, have they continued to follow this pattern of selecting land that maybe a traditional developer wouldn't touch because of the cleanup costs, or was that particular to this project?
1: I think historically that's how CNE uh leads the market mm-hmm. they go into a market where developers and the private market won't touch it and they'll they'll build the first couple of houses and then the developers will look around and say, oh this is a safe investment and then they kind of come in and build and then we go on to the next neighborhood right. so that's kind of that's been C e's model um I think um, Right now we're looking at, when we look for land, it's kind of opportunity driven right now, but also looking at where, especially in in more disinvested neighborhoods, which which we're looking at, you can't just do a one-off. You Mm -hmm. have to go in with a strategy for lifting up the entire neighborhood because one house Or one apartment building is not going to create the investment that you want in a neighborhood. So you have to really strategize what is the neighborhood plan? How are you going to bring a lot of investment so that then the private market and and frankly, people who own their own homes as well, it's not just it's their investors Mm. um, will feel like, oh, I want to improve my house because it's it's worth it. I can get my money back out of it. Um, And so that's kind of how we're looking at now, any place we're looking at going, what's the overall strategy and what is the price tag for that?
0: Right. Do you ever specifically target lots that that come with those additional challenges, whether it be environmental or maybe zoning related challenges? Every
1: project we (laughs) have. I don't think we've gotten a pro- a project yet that um, was the right, unless it was a single family house right. um, that had the right zoning that didn't have some challenge. And until you dig, you don't know what's underground. And right. so we always hold our breath in terms of our <laughs> contingency um, until we're we're out of the ground and and we know that what's there. And we figure, okay, you can kind of control costs once you start building up, but it's the under the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, uh, before we buy, we always do an environmental um, mm-hmm. assessment so you kind of know right. what's there. Right. Uh,
0: what is kind of the you've, – you've talked about a lot of different products that you all have, uh, various sizes of single family, uh, some large multifamily, and then that missing middle that you talked about. What's kind of the breakdown percentage-wise in terms of units, and is that a set strategy that you all have to meet a certain mix, or is it more dependent on – Uh, you know, each individual situation?
1: Uh, I would say it's really dependent on the lot size. So at the Maybell, we have one, two and three bedroom apartments. Uh, We have two, three bedroom apartments. Three bedrooms are hard to build. Um, I was just in conversations with uh, the city the other day about creating a strategy so we can build more three bedrooms. Um, the challenge is that a three-bedroom will take the same square footage as two one-bedrooms, but half the rent. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I could get 1600 for two one-bedrooms, I might get an affordable rent on a three-bedroom. might be 1200 And so how do you cover that gap?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's all about now what, the, what it costs to not only build, but your ongoing maintenance costs. And then who fills that gap because the math doesn't work um, when you're charging less rents? Mm -hmm. So uh, most of our uh, our duplexes, our two bedrooms, um, the uh, as I mentioned, the sixplexes have a mix of two and one bedrooms. Uh, We have some smaller one bedrooms. The five pack on Union Avenue is, is. that project stays full because our small one bedrooms are six ninety five, so um, and that's our market. That's our rent. Um, there's lower rents based on um, whether or not it's funded through the uh, home funds. Right. So, it's but that's getting harder to do because of the market and the construction costs. So. Right. And
0: then one last follow up question about some of the things you talked about already. You said you target twenty percent of those units being. Income so, restricted or subsidized? Yes, the, I would say... <laughs> what's the yes, term that you want to use? This gets very confusing.
1: <laughs> we, we target 20% to go to the city of Chattanooga and ask them for home funds. And those are units that are targeted towards folks that are earning $30,000 or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest of our units, we make affordable to 80% or less. Now, okay. right now in our portfolio, we have people that are over 80% in 80% AMI um, that was because believe it or not when we built the Maybell a market rent in 2017 was $800 and so we are, we're firm believers in neighborhoods of mixed income developments. You want, we want people to live in mixed income communities. That's the way it used to always be. Mm-hmm. And we're getting more and more stratified or separated um, through time just based on incomes, it seems like. Right. So uh, anyway, we would let it, anybody could move in, $800 a month. Um, and so some people are still there, uh, and some other projects are, were like that as well. Um, so some, but now as, as, um, rents have increased and incomes have increased, now we're saying, I don't want, personally, in the board, we don't want somebody, we, if we're going to keep rents low, because that's our mission, not because there's any government funding attached to a particular, a particular unit, if we're going to rent an apartment at 800 or 850 which is $400 below market, then I want to make sure that somebody who qualifies is living there. Right. So there's no point. Great if somebody who makes $60,000 a year wants to live in one of those, but I'm not going to charge you. I'm going to charge you then market rate. Right. Not my, my um, reduced rate. So we're, we're really trying to always walk that balance. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was a kind of revelation we had maybe about a year and a half ago that, gosh, rents are so high now. Um, we And while we believe in mixed income, I think that there is a mixed income community because when I look at, when we analyze our rents, 15% of our renters are under 30% AMI, which is like wow. $15,000. Yeah. And so, even though I'm throwing out these numbers to you, I mean, we're serving a really broad range of folks, from people who make zero, and they're they're getting a voucher. We take vouchers from from um, the housing authority all the way up to maybe a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. But most of our folks, I think, our average income the last time I looked was somewhere around thirty eight thousand dollars across our portfolio. Mm-hmm. But 50% of our tenants are, are earning less than about $25,000 a year. So I think that, I mean, I feel really happy that we're able to hit that target group, even though with our funding, we kind of go in for the $12 an hour sort of, um, $12 to $14 an hour households, uh, but we're able to achieve lower than that.
0: Right. So I want to move on and shift gears a little bit and talk about uh kind of some critiques of cne and the way that cne operates and and develops um so i want to start i'll split these up there's two main ones that i have heard just from viewing comments on facebook and and just talking to people uh so take all of this with a grain of salt but the first one is kind of from my experience sitting in in planning commission and and zoning hearings and things like that, several projects that CNE has done have seen pushback from the community, usually for being quote out of character with the neighborhood unquote in terms of you know scale or uh, you know a, a multi unit housing development in a traditionally single family neighborhood. Um, how do you respond to those critiques of of CNE? You know the people who are bringing these critiques to the table would maybe say not respecting the the character of the neighborhood?
1: Hmm, that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I get it that it's hard. Change mm. is always hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say with, I mean, I can almost go project by project. The Maybell we met with the community, and as I said, we kind of, we we appeased both the people that understand density and then those who wanted single family. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the critique of the Maybell is that it didn't look like its rendering. Um, and I mean, I'm the first to when when we've let folks down. I, I'm I'm not going to be defensive about it. I mean, the Maybell was a, 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 an issue of of value engineering because again, it's too, right. you know the costs are always some. Always an issue when you're trying to achieve affordable rents, um, but I think it's but I think it's turned out to be an incredible project, mm-hmm. um, and we've learned. I mean, every project we learn. As I said, we're we're creating prototypes, and so on each project, we're like, oh, we could have done this a little different next time. We'll right. do this, and it's a learning process. And our goal is to develop a really great product of work that private developers can use themselves mm-hmm. um, as good examples of good urban infill development. Um, the out of scale, I mean, the most recent example, which is this is a really tough challenge. Um, the, the Area 3 plan went through, they were, I don't even know how many meetings over a several-year period, where the the community got together and they planned out what their neighborhoods would look like, where there would be density, where there's still where they would uphold um, only single-family housing, and Bailey Avenue was identified as one of the corridors where there would be higher density rather than into the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and so. When we went forward with a 32 unit project on Bailey Avenue, there had been four dilapidated slum condition houses that we were able to purchase and bulldoze. And so when we proposed this project, the residents came out and said, we don't want this sort of density behind us. It was the neighbors behind. and um, uh, But it was in line with the plan. But mm-hmm. they had never heard about the plan. Right. And so to me, that's the challenge. It's like doing community engagement work for as long as I have, there's always somebody that doesn't know what's going on mm-hmm. and how do you bring them up to speed, which I think is what you're doing with your podcast, right. which is incredible, um, which, because it's needed. I mean, and it, we need it from all sort of avenues, but how do people know what's going on? How do they get involved? How do they have their voices heard? Which is one of the reasons for our community engagement work as well. Um, and so you're, so at some point, I, I mean, I don't know what the answer is because you kind of follow the rules, mm-hmm. but some people weren't aware of the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but we did, the, we did hear the residents on that project. They want something different than the, uh, six, the six plexes that are down the street. So we're trying to uh, go back with design work and figure out what's something that will be in scale, although there is that huge church across the street. So mm-hmm. it, this is a spot that I think could be a little uh, more dense. But anyway, how do you make break up the pattern of the street so that it feels... Um, comfortable to the neighborhood we did respond to the neighborhood about the quadplexes on um, behind the maybell we're calling the maybell two so that was going to be a similar maybell project but they wanted something that mirrored the houses and so we're doing the quads okay um so we believe it or not i mean we do try to be respectful and listen right because it sounds
0: like you've tried to at commu- I mean, this.
1: i mean we are a community-based organization my right. board is made up of community members mm-hmm. so it's not some corporate board where people live someplace else i mean these are all people that donate and volunteer their time because they want a better chattanooga
0: right so i actually want to uh back up just a second and provide some context to some of our listeners who might be coming to this interview fresh. Um, You mentioned the Area 3 plan. Uh, That is a plan that was put in place by the Regional Planning Agency. I believe that's the River to Ridge plan that kind of provides a framework for future zoning decisions. Um, And so I encourage any listeners who are kind of struggling to keep up here, Uh, to go back and listen to the episodes Intro to Zoning and Regional Planning Agency. Uh, I kind of covered a lot of this stuff and talked about how, you know, the area plan is not necessarily a legal document that says this is what you can do on your land right now, but it is supposed to support somebody who comes and says, okay, this is an R1 zoning. It means you can only build a single family house, but the area plan says this should be maybe R2, R3. And so that provides some extra ammunition for somebody going through rezoning to say, hey, we want to build more density along this corridor. Um, So I I want to make sure nobody gets left behind. We're we're starting to get into the weeds, and and I'm really excited for this portion of the conversation. Uh, But for anybody listening who is getting a little lost, probably go back to those episodes intro to zoning and the regional planning agency. Um, So I want to move on to actually I want to ask one follow up question. Mm -hmm. Go ahead.
1: No, actually, as a follow-up, as as, as I'm hearing you talk, the other challenge, I think, is that I think we have to be very careful. When you ask, like, kind of what my response is to some of the criticism, I think we have to be very careful about using density as the flag under opposing affordable housing. Right. And so even though I know folks will say, I don't mind affordable housing, I'm pro-affordable housing but yet this is too dense. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it's a double-edged sword because you can't get, especially with land and construction prices as they are now, in fact, you're going to be seeing, prop, my guess is, in the private building market, you're going to be seeing more and more townhomes. This is right. what's happened. You know, I lived in L.A. For, for many years and worked there. I mean, there's very few product now that... Um, um, is standalone single family. It's all townhomes or condominiums or because land costs are such, that's just how you make the numbers work. So right. we're in a shift. And I think it's, it's going to take people some time to, to understand that if you want neighborhood serving uses, if you want affordability, that that comes at a cost. And so one way to help reduce the cost is through density
0: right i mean that land costs the same no matter how many units you put on it so you've got to diffuse that somehow um and i'm glad you mentioned that Uh, you know these are the kind of critiques that i I hear at planning commission so i I do want to give them space but i'm I'm glad you got into kind of the weeds of how that breaks down and why density and affordability are are linked in that way um i i do want to ask a follow-up question i'm just wondering uh You know, since some of these projects have been built and since they have been, you know, lived in for for years, in some cases now, in the course of your community engagement, following up with these neighborhoods, how have they been integrated? I mean, has it been successful integrating these larger units into a traditionally single family neighborhood on the ground? I mean, neighbors getting along with one another and people, you know, just living in tandem in these two different types of uses? How is that?
1: Well, I certainly haven't heard of any fistfights between (laughs) single family owners and and my tenants. So I mean, um, it's kind of a difficult question. So I, I guess I want to answer this because I've heard this critique Mm -hmm. and I would respond with, there are people that are inclined to be involved in their community, and there are people who are inclined not to be. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it matters whether you live in a single family house or whether you're a renter. And so I know that there are tenants, for example, at the Maybell that are, that are involved, that um, uh, in, internally within the, the building, there's a, there's a sense of community with folks that have lived there now for, what, four or five years Um, But whether that translates to people participating in a neighborhood association, um, although I will say that what's the incentive to participate in a neighborhood association if you hear comments about that, that you feel like you're excluded. Right. Um, and, and I've certainly heard those comments. And so it's kind of like, well, if you're complaining because people are, or you're criticizing because people aren't involved in your activity, but yet they attend the activity and they're made to feel bullied or not included by some comment that's made, why would they? Right. So um, anyway, I think we do um, – encourage and um, encourage people to sign up for the whatever neighborhood they're living in their whatever communication tool that they use um, to attend meetings or whatever so
0: and that's that's great I think that sums that up fairly well in terms of it's not necessarily a, a matter of you know, renters versus owners and, and things like that. But, you know, everybody can be involved. It's not just homeowners who have that agency to, to be part of a neighborhood association or a community group. Um, I want to talk about another critique of CNE. Uh, there are concerns that CNE is intentionally or not uh, kind of an agent of, of gentrification in a way by being the first builder in a neighborhood that is historically underserved coming in building a large amount of new construction and and very quickly raising property values in a neighborhood. Um, h- how do you respond to that critique? Uh, you know, this idea of, of maybe price setting a neighborhood um, and, and how that how would you respond to that?
1: There is a school of thought that would say that's absolutely great, that what you want is, Property taxes to be increased because that creates a stronger city. Mm-hmm. I think when we start talking about policy, the issue becomes what do you do with that increase in property values, right. and so how is that reinvested back into the community to help the community where you are working, right. um, and what are the safeguards that be that can be created so people don't get priced out of a neighborhood, mm-hmm. because if you don't invest in a neighborhood. Conversely, what you're saying is uh, disinvested neighborhoods is our affordable housing strategy. And so do people, is it fair that in order because to keep affordability that neighborhoods are disinvested for years? I mean, I I don't believe, I don't think anybody wants that. Um, And so to me, it's. When you talk about the word gentrification, I would say really what we're trying to do is implement a neighborhood investment strategy that helps all people that are there. Um, one of the safeguards, and I think we've done this pretty successfully in, in Highland Park, is you build more affordable housing into the mix. And so, in as I mentioned, uh, in Highland Park, the market rate back in 2017 was $800, we haven't raised our rents. Our rents are still $800, but the market rate now, the county average for a one-bedroom apartment in the county is $1,175. Mm-hmm. Downtown, it's over $1,200. Mm-hmm. So we, we may have been at market when we open, but our goal is looking the long term. What does our portfolio look like as we age and our costs are where they are. And b- based on operating costs, we will have to raise rents. Um, but because we start low, we're going to be able to stay low. Right. Um, and
0: you're not raising, you know, I, I guess the typical market rate rent raises uh, based on demand, based on, you know, the, the landlord is able to get so much more profit, Based on just the market being more desirable, and that's something you know you're raising off of. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like you're raising based off of, you know, taxes go up, uh, maintenance costs go costs, up, operating costs correct, but that profit margin stays the same.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and I think, and also thinking about, I mean, CNE is we've never displaced anybody. We've built so far. We've built all on either um, mostly vacant land. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and we just rehabilitated the, the old post office in Ridgedale, but there was nobody living there. So, um, but I think this is, and in fact, we're going to, we, we have a, my policy committee on my board is really interested in exploring this whole gentrification conversation. And I almost hate saying the word because it's so loaded with, pros and cons and people that that just have this immediate reaction of, oh, that's bad. But really what we're talking about is investment and what's our investment strategy and how does everybody in the community benefit from that? And I think that's a conversation worth having to help drive policy around how do you really help ensure that there, if, if houses, um, if housing prices are going up, if um, the neighborhood is starting to see a general increase in desirability. How do you protect the people that are living there?
0: Right. And you're, you're spot on with, with gentrification being a loaded term. I think it's very similar to affordable housing in that it's a term that everybody knows and everybody uses. But uh, if you ask any two different people what it means, you're going to get two different answers. It's it's not a well-defined phenomenon. Um I feel like this is a good point to kind of jump into the policy conversation, and we'll start with, uh, you know, how CNE is involved in policy advocacy, and and I guess we can start with, you know, maybe what are those safeguards against displacement that can be put in place, and how can cities use policy to prevent displacement?
1: That's a really good question, and I uh, I look forward to a um robust conversations with the new administration around these issues. Um, So from my perspective, the the low-hanging fruit is building more affordable housing. Um, And so you could take the the taxes, the the incremental tax difference between what you were earning before and the new tax basis, and reinvest some of that money back into just affordable housing. Um, There are places across the country, California being one, uh, they had actual, re, um, called TIF, uh, redevelopment agencies would uh, tax increment financing and they would take the profits from increased taxes and 25% would go back into affordable housing. Um, that's one, one way you could do it. You could do it voluntarily. It doesn't have to be an actual government defined TIF or, um, uh, and oh shoot, now I've forgotten who, somebody just did that some city voluntarily is using the difference between what their taxes were and the new tax basis for affordable housing. Maybe it'll come to me. Um, so that's one. I think, uh, another would be, um, um, and I've forgotten exactly now if they're calling them legacy programs, but I'm really interested in Write a of first um, offer to, fo- to folks when you build the affordable housing, folks that have a tie to that neighborhood, either currently or maybe go back a generation or something. They have the first right to be able to rent those units.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, and I really like that policy. Yeah. Um, because I think that that helps then ensure that people who are living there are able to stay there and they've made the investment living in that neighborhood for, in some cases, generations. Right. Um, so I like that as a policy. Uh, I, th- I would love to explore, right now there's a tax abatement if you're over the age, I believe, of 62 and of a certain income, but I'm wondering if that could be expanded to... Why is it age related? Why can't it be just income related? Um, and as a portion, much that we, we qualify people for rent or mortgages, 30% of your income, and so a certain percentage of your taxes could be frozen. If uh, you can, if it goes up over your thirty percent income,
0: so you're talking about property taxes being yes, frozen I'm sorry, property taxes. So that yes. as values around you increase and your property assessment increases, your taxes aren't increasing fast enough to to drive you out. Correct. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, and we're seeing that you know ta- uh, everybody just received their tax notices and we, uh, um, service loans here as I mentioned and vote. Fo- neighborhoods across the Chattanooga have gotten these increases regardless of whether C&E was there or not. And, um, uh, I mean, folks can't afford, if you're living on $650, 700 a month, I mean, any tax increase is just, it wreaks havoc on your right. budget. So um, we just, you know, right now we just say to people, we'll make sure you've, you've applied for the tax abatement um, or the freeze. So, but I think those those are the kind of the low hanging public policy um, uh, uh, recommendations that I would make to the when I get a chance with the city. Right.
0: Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned um, pilots being used to kind of offset costs of projects that CNE has done. I think you said there's only one Just so one, far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you mentioned maybe looking into that in the future. Could you dive into that a little bit more? Yes.
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned, c pays property taxes at a very high rate. Um, if people don't know, multifamily is taxed at a higher rate than single family. So again, you're penalizing renters. Um, why, I don't know. But uh, so we pay a higher property tax rate. It Equates to about 115 dollars a month of um, additional rent we have to charge um, because we pay taxes, or it means less money that we can borrow, which means we have to bring in more equity, which makes it hard because how are you going to raise equity as as I mean, it gets things get more expensive. So uh, we are recommending we've made a recommendation to both the city and the county that CNE. Be considered to get a pilot by checklist, or I don't want to say by right because I, I don't know if maybe maybe we can get it by right. But basically, if your mission, like CNE, is to create and preserve and maintain affordable housing, and if it is for a certain period of time, and if a percentage of our rents are below or at or below 60% AMI then we should be able to just know that we're going to get a pilot and move forward. Um, the process now is you make an application, they review your application, you have to meet with all of your city council people, you have to meet with all of the city commissioners, the county commissioners. It's very arduous and fraught with politics. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it really hard when you're trying to do a project, and it's very time-consuming, and you have to get attorneys involved. Um, and so all of that just adds to the cost of an affordable project, and so uh, there's some openness to looking at how um, that can be done, so I'm looking forward to that.
0: Just to back up for some of our listeners, can you explain what a pilot is?
1: Yes, I'm sorry. A pilot is payment in lieu of taxes, so what it does is um, you don't have to pay the increase in value of your project the increase in taxes except for the school taxes and so it's usually for a uh uh, determined period of time Mm -hmm. i think our current pilot is 10 years Mm um each project is different you kind of negotiate it differently with uh the city and the county um so uh but I mean, it's a huge difference. I mean, the school taxes, I've forgotten what percentage it is, but it's, a, it's some percentage of the overall tax bill that you pay so that you would still pay your school taxes, but the other taxes, you don't have to pay for a specified period of time.
0: So is it safe to say that that's, it's basically a property tax freeze over 10 yes. years, yes, excluding schools?
1: Yes, and there is a state, for, you can get a state exemption, which is really great, except that the legislation was written such that it's only for senior housing and disabled. And if not those two things, then you, it, it is a specific funding source. Right. So um, we don't qualify. We've gotten, that, we've gotten the state exemption on a few units that we own, but not um, our overall portfolio.
0: Uh, so I want to move on and, and talk about we've touched on zoning several times in this conversation already. So I'm just curious uh, about CNE's policy recommendations around zoning and and how zoning can be used as a tool to promote affordable housing and, you know, just neighborhood health in general.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um- <clears throat> So as I mentioned, every project that we've done, we've had to go in with the zoning request to change it. There isn't a really good zone for the kind of product that we do. We've been using UTZ, um, and it's not perfect, but that's what we've been using. Um, I don't want to confuse our listeners. It's just its not important. It's just a zone. It's just a particular zone that um, – so – But it's, it's a, um, and it's always, again, it adds time when, not even with C&E is, especially if you think about how do you get to scale, it would be great to get private developers in this area as well. So I'm going to think for a private developer for a second, to them at time is always money because usually they're using someone else's money that they've borrowed. And so... The longer it takes to go through a zoning process, that's just money that's adding to the overall bill that then gets added to the tenant's rent. Mm-hmm. And so, when you have to go in for zoning changes, it can take several months. Um, it's and again, it's you never know if you'll get it approved or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I do know that. Um, um, I think we've, we've been able to figure it out in terms of the personalities of people. That has a lot to do with it, how you deal with people in terms of um, that work at the city and working with them to figure out the best zone. Um, and it's not then zoning. It's also then the building codes have a lot to do with uh, your overall um, cost and, and process as well. Mm-hmm. Did you, do, is there something specific about zoning that you're thinking about?
0: Uh, no, all that has been helpful. I guess it sounds like you're having trouble using the zones as written currently to build, I'm assuming the, the missing middle and probably larger projects that y'all have built. And I'm also thinking, I know y'all did a, a, a tiny house, I guess, Mm -hmm. And I know those can be really difficult. Just my experience as an engineer, things like that can be really difficult because of setbacks and things end up eating up so much of the lot that you have to be a certain distance away from your side lot line and you have to be a certain distance away from your back lot line and you have to be a certain distance away from your front lot line. And by the time you draw all those lines, if you have a very small lot, you're left with an unbuildable piece of property so you have to go apply for variances for all of these setbacks and things yeah um, what,
1: what and that's why we've used ugc because most of for example the project we uh talked about earlier on bailey that were in design um that was r3 mm-hmm. well r3 you don't want an r3 i mean basically your setback from the street you could in theory you could put parking in the front of the building Right,
0: that's more of the like suburban style yes. apartment set well back from the street. The parking lot out in front. You've got maybe you know several different buildings kind of uh, scattered around the site with driveways through them. It's not urban in any way,
1: right? And and so that's why we go through the process of UGC. Is the you know we can move the project closer to the street. Um, we're really con you know really trying to create a good pedestrian experience so that. Uh, our buildings are pushed towards the front of the street, um, front porches as much mm-hmm. as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, another cost that just, again, in my own experience comes up uh, is stormwater and parking are both pretty significant costs on a development like this. And I'm, I'm just curious if, if CNE has any policy recommendations around uh, – Either of those parking, you know, you're under most zones, you're required a certain number of parking spaces per unit, uh, which then in turn affects your stormwater. You have to treat a certain amount of stormwater uh, and and make sure it doesn't leave the site essentially everywhere in the downtown area, uh, which can be a very arduous process. And so I'm curious if you have any specific recommendations to promote affordable housing around either of those regulations.
1: Uh, well, interestingly, yes, we do. (laughs) Um, I will say on the parking, that's a challenge because you might have the city relax their requirements, but then you have the banks and the banks have their own requirement in terms of, because they look at how they underwrite your loan is they look at vacancy rates and not having enough parking can be a major source of vacancy. And so that's why they underwrite it differently. So you have to adhere to what the bank's right. requirements are right. oftentimes. Um, the On the stormwater side, uh, Justin Tearson came to work with us not quite a year ago. And he used to work at the RPA. So he's put together an, a list and has met with... Uh, new administration and has started these conversations about what are the barriers that we have seen Mm -hmm. that we think can be addressed to really help improve um, development of of, uh, uh, buildings that are more affordably constructed, let me say that. Um, So stormwater, I mean, I'll give you a great example. Um, We um, You might have a Build something that have we might um, like a sixplex, and the number of bedrooms overall might be almost as many as what was previously there. But because it's a multi-family, then they make you go through stormwater and all these other things that if you were just rebuilding a single-family house, you wouldn't have to do. You, you're already connected to the sewer system, um, so that's been an issue that we're that we're looking at addressing. Um, uh, contiguous lots if you're two lots you don't have to worry about stormwater if you're three then it kicks in stormwater even though for example we built six houses next door to each other we had to do stormwater even though there were six separate houses there previously but because we were doing it as one developer um we had to then deal with stormwater um so those are sort of the things that we're looking at trying to come up with common sense solutions
0: Right, so I would love to keep this conversation going. This is the kind of thing that I get really excited about. Uh, but we are running out of time a little bit, so I, I just want to ask: Is there anywhere that CNE has kind of collected some of these policy recommendations that are publicly available? Uh, is that a document that we can read, or is that something that's more internal?
1: Um, <clears throat> yes, we did when the in the last mayoral election we created a policy platform that we put forth Mm -hmm. to all of the candidates. Uh, It's not as prescriptive as some of the things that we're talking about, but the general policy direction was address building and zoning codes, for example, that uh, that impact affordability. Um, And that's on our website. And we're currently working on a similar platform uh, with the uh, mayoral election for the county. So uh, if you go on our website, you can see those platforms. But again, trying to keep them specific enough to say, here's some general things that you need to think about, you should be thinking about now, Mm -hmm. um, but not so prescriptive that um, they would say, I like this, I don't like that. Because I think that's part of an ongoing conversation to have.
0: So, so I've got two more questions. Do you have any reading or listening recommendations for people interested in learning more about affordable housing policy?
1: Um, yes, I actually discovered a really great podcast you might like. Um, it's called UCLA Housing. And there was, and I, I just came this morning, as a matter of fact, and um, I got a notice around this question of parking. And the this week's podcast, the UCLA guys, uh, they bring in all these people that are academics that have written papers, and it can be from across the world, it can be very specific to something going on in the United States, but the discussion this week is about somebody who has studied this issue of does the lack of parking in um, uh, developments create um, people walking less or is it people that are walking less are drawn to units with uh, limited parking? And I, I, don't, I don't know how they, I don't know the answer. That's why I'm right. going to listen to this. Um, anyway, it's a really, I, have really enjoyed their podcast. They cover a lot of different issues. Um, and even though it's out of UCLA, it's, as I said, it's a, it's nationwide issues. And, and even in some cases they go international around these issues. Um, And then, um, you know, ULI, uh, they're they're a good source, um, Urban Institute, Next City, Shelter Force. Those are kind of the industry publications around these issues. Affordable Housing, uh, National Low Income Housing Coalition, they, um, they put out stuff.
0: Great. And I've got one last question. This comes from a, a Patreon supporter. They're allowed to ask listener questions at the end of every episode. So we've actually covered a lot of this one, so I want to focus on kind of specific recommendations. How can regular Chattanoogans best advocate for higher density, lower cost housing development? And and we've kind of talked about a few tools that the city has at its disposal. So I guess this question is more geared toward how can the man on the street help advocate. Are there any specific groups here in town or avenues for advocacy that, that just normal citizens can get involved in?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think that uh, the mayor just completed his budget listening tour. I think that uh, they were looking for people. They wanted citizen input around how, how budgetary dollars should be spent. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and and they do that every year. And there's a couple of times during the year with different funding sources where they'll put out, we're going to be having meetings that people could go to and let their voices be heard. Um, I think Talking to your city council person representative and telling them that you're in favor of increased density or uh, funding for affordable housing. I think that it's really important that you establish relationships and they hear from people because oftentimes they only hear from people that are opposed to something, not proactively in favor of something. Hmm. Um, so I think those are two ways. Locally, there is, uh, you know, Caleb. Um, they've been very involved in the community land trust issue um, and uh, the pilot. They're also more on on jobs pilots, but um, uh, and then their membership selects the issues that they want to work on. And so I would say that's a good um, uh, advocacy place to to get involved with.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for those recommendations, and thank you so much for your
1: time. Yeah, thank you.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chattanooga Civics. Our music was written and recorded by Kevin McLeod. If you have any questions or feedback, please send me an email at chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Chat Civics, or visit the website, chattanoogacivics.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.